the Big Chill Podcast. We're on episode one, the Liverpool situation. I'm Frank, and I'm here with Eddie and Sam, as usual. Uh, and we're gonna, we have a lot of sports to talk about, um, sports that are finishing, sports that are starting. Um, we can expose Eddie a little bit on his hate for Jamie Vardy. Um, so let's start with the Premier League. Um, I'll leave this one basically to you two. Um, I don't want to be the American who thinks he knows what he's talking about when it comes to the Premier League, because I really don't. Um, but it just finished on Sunday, uh, which I, as an American, I think is the coolest thing that the Premier League does when they make everyone play at the same time. And I don't know how it works in England, if you can actually watch all the matches or if there's like a, kind of like a red zone, uh, kind of how they have the NFL for, for that. But it's a really cool idea to kind of have everyone go at the same time and like minute by minute, there can be different outcomes, which is kind of what happened um, for the relegation. Um, so I'll let you guys get to it. Um, what do you think are the big takeaways? Um, obviously, Liverpool winning. Uh, I'm sure Eddie's got some opinions on that. Um, so Liverpool winning, uh, who's getting relegated? Um, if there's anyone in the Champions League that you think is worth talking about coming up from promotion? Uh, so I'll kick it off to you guys and uh, let's, let's get it started. All right. Um... Yeah, no, I think the final day is one of the more exciting moments in football, the fact that everything's aligned. Um, and even though the title race, I've pro probably been a bit spoiled in recent years where there have been title races that have gone down to the final day. And maybe a little bit of an anticlimax to have had Liverpool already win the league several sort of match days before it was all over. But obviously to have... I guess three teams sort of had the chance of either going down or staying up. And then that went down to the very final few minutes. And then obviously United, Chelsea and Leicester sort of fighting for those top four spots and Spurs I secured Europa League football and Mourinho was super happy about that achievement, which was sort of surprising after he'd spent a, a year sort of making fun of the competition, but that yeah, was a good final day. And probably in the end, I think the finishing positions of the teams is, maybe a fair reflection of their overall overall sort of ability and strength. I don't know what you think, Sam. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool have dominated it, haven't they? There was no one really... I think there was a moment in maybe like October or November when Liverpool beat City 3-1 and they went from six clear to nine. And I think the way Liverpool were just winning games, it felt... You always have that Christmas bit with the Premier League where you think, okay, if a team gets out of it just as good a form as they went into it, you know, they're going to look really good. And just the thing with Liverpool is they just never stopped. And then they had that slight blip with the European competitions and, you know, going out of the uh, domestic cups. But ultimately, they just looked too good. They were just winning games. You can say what you want about VAR being on their side, but they just looked too good. Um, Mourinho, Mourinho is a weird one with Spurs because he picked them up when they were 14th. So to come out of it in sixth is pretty impressive. But yeah, I mean, for a guy that's literally won every, almost everything you can possibly do in European competitions to be like, I'm absolutely delighted at coming sixth. It, it does seem a little bit of a fall from grace for that kind of guy. I mean... Yeah, no, you're, you're right, though. In the context of when he took charge and what they look like, and the fact that also for most of his time in charge, you've not had Harry Kane available, which for Spurs is so important. So the fact that he managed to get them to still pick up... It's just that, it's just that they're so awful to watch. 
I mean, that's the real thing. It's really painful. If if they were playing think... if they were playing better football and had exactly the same results, or even maybe slightly worse, I guess people probably would have given him a lot more credit. But the fact that they just it's just terrible to watch most of the time. It just makes people have a sort of instant negative reaction to anything that they achieve. I, am, am I naive? Like, I mean, I don't get it. I, I don't understand how they're not better. Like, I look at their their lineup and their roster, and I feel like they should be better than they are. And then you watch them play, and it's it's terrible watching them play. Like, I, like you should almost be excited with some of the players they have to watch them play, and then they go out, and it's, it's like this is like this is terrible this is pathetic it's boring but like, they should be exciting to watch and they're boring to watch like i hate what i used i've put a part of that down to Mourinho, it. though that's partly down to Mourinho. i mean he his managerial career has been based on essentially annoying the other teams frustrating them slowing it down being really strong defensively and counter-attacking like that's essentially how he does it it's not that exciting it's not like a like take Arsenal, like a similar team where you think exciting players, but sometimes can just collapse. I think the thing with Arsenal is they've got a lot more of a cavalier attitude to counter-attacking, which really bites them more often than not. But the thing with Spurs is if the counter-attacking isn't working, it's probably going to be a nil-nil. <laughs> and so well, it suddenly comes across bland to watch. Also, for the way Mourinho tries to set up a team, I don't think the actual players Spurs have are that suited to it because... They desperately lack someone in central midfield to sort of pull the strings and dictate the play. They probably expected that Ndombele could could kind of be that, and then he really hasn't been. And then actually defensively, they're really not very good. The fact that you have Eric Dyer starting for them in a position that isn't certainly isn't his best, but also just the fact is never a good sign when a team starts putting like a utility player into a really key key position. And the fact that Eric Dyer is getting that role in, in big matches says, I mean, if they don't go out and bring in some better central defenders, I'd be stunned. But then I don't know. They're not exactly the team that you would expect to spend a lot of money in the current climate. And so then that's going to make it really hard for them to bring in something better. And besides, new stadium. I mean, what do you do after a new stadium? You either go all in with it. You either spend a lot of money, new stadium, you're going to bring in the best players to bring the biggest buzz, or you do what Arsenal did, where it's just like, oh, it's been financed through debt, so now we're going to have to consolidate budgets, and for the next decade, the team's looking pretty terrible. Um, I guess that's that's Levy. Levy's not exactly a man you want uh, with all the cash, because he's not going to spend it, quite frankly, but that's what they need at the moment, I think. It's tough, too, because the other thing is you'd have to sort of do a You'd have to look at the league and say, what are our chances of finishing fourth? Even if our signings are great. Because you have to assume that Liverpool and City will be in, in the top four. Then, so then they're competing with United, Chelsea, Arsenal, Leicester for their sort of remaining two spots. It's hard to see, you know, in, when you look at both United and Chelsea, you kind of want to think that next year they will be better. So to close the gap to the, the third and fourth for Spurs, it's a huge gap to close. Even then, you would probably say that Wolves are in a better position next year to be better than Spurs. If it stayed at the moment right now, and we just assume that Levy didn't spend a penny, you I would probably assume Wolves I guess if Wolves, be better. If, if Wolves can, can put more of their players on the uh, Adama Traore uh, steroid plan, 
they all get on <laughs> they all get on that cycle that who knows he is an absolute bully, unit. literally bully teams around <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just have a keeper will take up the entire the entire net <laughs> <laughs> just a block it's a solid block no his, his physical transformation i am totally unrelated topic but i know that they get drugs tested in football and, and perhaps he's just really 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 focused on his steroid it seems unbelievable to me to have that kind of physical transformation at the age at which he had it too it's not like it's one thing to see someone undergo that kind of shift from sort of 17 to 20 or something like that but to do that especially to do it when you were already a professional footballer so there should really be no reason to have that dramatic yeah uh, the transformation who else did it happen to uh, the guy at west ham was it mark antonio who, who basically they've turned him from a like a, a striker who was just pretty good quite decent and pacey to now he literally pushes players over <laughs> like it, it it's kind of a like a mega tank kind of thing um yeah, but um, well, it's like I was looking at um, something on Instagram before and it had Lukaku over the years because he had a pretty good season goal wise. And just looking through him, he did the opposite transformation. His gut every year just gets like bigger and bigger. I didn't know that he was actually that fit looking when he was younger. I thought he was always just kind of like an out of shape looking player. But I looked at him and it's like, I didn't even know that was like, you could barely tell it was him. Like his face looks different. He's kind of trim, kind of slim. And then they show him from this year. And, like, his the form-fitting jerseys for him, they should never be allowed because it's just, like, his gut. looks like he's pregnant. It's great. <laughs> so he's done the opposite transformation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely no steroid use involved there. <laughs> I mean, he, maybe he's doing it wrong. Maybe he's, like, eating huge meals, <laughs> not exercising, but then drinking a bunch of protein shakes. Like, so he thinks... He thinks that he's like, ah, as long as I get the protein shakes in, everything will work out. Yeah, maybe just no one told him that there's more to do with weight gain formula. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's just like, look at my gains, guys. 50 pounds this year. <laughs> but also the thing, so, like, go back to a point you touched on, Sam, like Liverpool have looked unstoppable this year, and they are undoubtedly, I'm not going to try and make a statement where I don't think they are, they're totally deserving champions. And their consistency and ability to win when they aren't playing particularly well and to kind of grind out results is really admirable. And one of those things that you normally associate with teams that win, win the league title. But I still fundamentally believe that City on their, when both teams play each other on their best day, I think City are the better team. Okay. And now City are horribly inconsistent and desperately need to improve themselves defensively going into next season. But... For example, for me, I think that City, I'd make City favorites to win the league next season, and I would pick City to win next year. See, I so wouldn't actually. Sam, Sam, real quick. Is this Eddie's way of saying that all the losses he has in bets from City winning the league are justified because, in his mind, City was still the better bet? Is that what he's trying to tell us here? Oh, I'm not, I'm not even that's it. how he's hey, using hey, that. It's, hey, it's, it's been a few days right over. Bet. Eddie's all over. Season's in the past. He's moving Yeah, forward. no, exactly. Just keep looking forward. <laughs> Focus on the next bet, not the But last. the thing is, like, just to say, like, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, City scored over 100 goals this year. Uh, yeah. Okay, they they lose annoying games. So as a gambler, you must be infuriated because they'll win easily either side of that loss five nil every game, and it almost doesn't matter who the team is. So they score over a hundred goals. They conceded, I think, about the same as Liverpool, maybe mid thirties, early thirties, like thirty five or something like that. They 
conceded. So the thing with Liverpool for me is that the forward three are really good, don't get me wrong. But when Van Dijk is not in that team, I feel more worried about Liverpool winning than I would with Man City without Sterling, for example, or something like that. I, I just think that Liverpool really have a linchpin with Van Dijk, whereas Man City, I think, have more cover for more positions. Like, defensive priorities get uh, flagged every time, like Arsenal in the FA Cup semi-final beat them on exactly that reason, defensive frailties. But Man City know that, and I just struggle to see... You can't replace Van Dijk because he's not going to be replaced. But if he gets injured, I think Liverpool have a problem next season. If it, even if it's for a month, there's still four games. Yeah, or if he were just to be suspended for some crucial matches or whatever, just if you didn't have him in the matches where they really get top opposition. But I think in general, they're much more reliant on, say, their three to four key players than City are. I mean, City, when they're missing Sterling or missing De Bruyne, look a different side. But still, fundamentally, they've got you know, the fact that they can bring someone like Mahrez in who can kind of fill that void for certain aspects pretty well. Also, the other concern for Liverpool, and it's not going to be an immediate one for next season, but they have a much older squad. And all of their key players are going to need to be replaced in the next three, four seasons. This, this, it did feel like their moment, didn't it? Because last season, if it wasn't for that incredible... So going back right to the start, what you were saying about, you know, we've been really lucky. Last season was just an incredible run. The idea that, what was it, 13 matches won straight each... And it was insane. It was such good football because it was so captivating. Every single team for the last 20, 30 years of the Premier League slips up when they go on some sort of pressure running or need to win games. And they just didn't. And it was incredible to watch. But I agree with you. I think I think Man City look better. I just think well, they look better equipped at the moment. I mean, what you touched on too, and for Liverpool, they then carry that on into for two-thirds of this season. So, you know, they've, they've, they went through a sort of 18-month period where they didn't lose, you know, and that's, that's incredible. They, um, I'm, I'm biased against Liverpool. I'm not a fan of Liverpool, but you can't, you can't deny what they've done. But I'm so happy that all the records they could have won, they didn't win as many by a mile. So they didn't break the 100 point. They got 99. <laughs> so they didn't do that. They were going unbeaten at one point. And then they get absolutely humped by Watford, I think it was, which was, yeah. the, it was the most satisfying game of this season for me to watch. And then on top of it, they didn't get the perfect record at home because of that draw with Burnley like two weeks ago. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I think... I'm just satisfied I, by that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, Liverpool. I think the thing is that they would have been, they were on course to be statistically the, the greatest English team of all time. And over the period of... And even if you factored in, there was a moment when you could have thought they're going to win the Champions League again mm. and go unbeaten in the league, possibly break the points record, do all of the things. I mean, you, you know, they could have got into the... Not that they aren't one of the very best teams of recent years, but they were on course to be able to really make the argument for the fact that they were the, you know, the greatest English team of all time and potentially even the greatest sort of European team of all time. And that's, that's gone. You can't make that argument now. Yeah, they do need to be consistently winning. And I'm not saying they're not. They obviously beat Spurs in the Champions League, for example. But they need like a four or five year purple patch where they are close with everything continuously. Um, oh, yeah. Pe people are already talking about it sort of as if it's a little bit of a dynasty. And 
And I mean, finishing, finishing second and then finishing first is not a dynasty. You know, a couple of years ago, they finished Good Champions fourth. League wins in the middle of it, though. Yeah, well. Yeah, yeah well, no, that's, that's my it's, point it's, as well. It's a good run. It's not a dynasty. No. no. It's no, a no, very solid know. run. Yeah. Like, if they had done, if they had done those records, you know, the 100-point the barrier, the 18, what is it, 18, uh, 19 for 19 home, you could start talking about that because so many records got broken by a single club in a single year. Like just look at Arsenal, like that Invincibles year is a dynasty because they went unbeaten. But they no, but also- Arsenal's the, di- the the Invi- the Invincibles are a dynasty in the context that in that period, exactly. you know, they won several league league titles. So it wasn't as if, and you know, the FA Cup several times, and it wasn't as if wow, you had one incredible season. You know, a dynasty implies that you are very very good over a number of years and you consistently win you know you are champions over a number of years not even just getting close yeah that's the, yeah that's my point i guess as well that liverpool need to do that for this to be considered a, a dynastic year i guess if you put it a better way but you know all they're going to do is win the league now obviously that's really good liverpool fans are delighted but that's that's it so, um, so speaking of dynasties i think jake would be pissed if we didn't Mention United. Oh, you said this... pissed. You said pissed. We're explicit now. I'm gonna have to put the E on the title. <laughs> Is well, maybe when we talk about United, we can get Jake on the other end, cursing at us, <laughs> listening to this podcast. Is is this the start of a rebuild for United? Is this encouraging? I Is don't this... think Man U fans quite understand how they finished the season third. I, th- what do you I mean think they don't understand? if you ask, I, I think if you ask most of them, they, 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 yeah, they, yeah, they were saying they're not capable of adding no, no. up points. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's they literally can't calculate what happened. <laughs> <Are> you... <laughs> no, but I'm saying they're surprised. You must be sat there when what for the past nine months, all they've basically done is ridicule Solskjaer and that team, and then all of a sudden they signed Bruno Fernandez and things took up and. To, to be third, I would probably say they're third because everyone else was just terrible at maintaining some sort of like consistency. But oh well, yeah, Leicester felt Leicester fell off a bit of a cliff. Third and ninth, I mean, we're, we're hit. Leicester were hit pretty badly by a number of injuries, but also just in general fell off a cliff after the restart. Mm-hmm. And United were pretty. I mean, even United slipped up in the in the final few matches. It's not as if they were perfect. And, you know, but to me, I think it's the, st- I wouldn't say they're never going to get back to where they were. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like it's in imp- no club will probably ever dominate the English sort of leagues in the way that United did over a 20 year period under Ferguson. Like that's never going to happen again. So they're not going to well, rebuild I'm, to that degree, but I do think if that, I'm wrong. Did, didn't after Ferguson left, didn't they have a year where they were like, third or fourth in the league again and it looked yeah. like they were and then and then they kind of just started dropping again so i mean is this just another like one year kind of lucky thing or i i mean i mean what, they, they, what is so, so what what do you think is like good for them for next year well the question is when will united be serious title challengers again that's the question and not even not even saying when will they win the title again at what point will you seriously mention united and they're not there 
I'm not going to say that United are title now. It's possible that they make a leap forward or they make a couple of good signings. And there's some, they've got so many very talented young players between, you know, next season, maybe a few of them kind of make that, that leap and suddenly turn into the players that they have the potential to be. And then we talk about United differently, but I don't think I, I would put, I would say that United in their current form are probably now on course to be a solid top four team which is an improvement over recent seasons, but still significantly behind City and Liverpool. And so... So, really so if you're a supporter, I mean, like, are you okay with that? Because I, I, I agree, I think they can be in that top four, but does it really matter at the end of the day if they're still nowhere as competitive as Liverpool and City? I mean, is that... I mean, I are watched you still the match, frustrated or...? I watched the match yesterday at a pub, and which was filled with United supporters. And oh, so you went to a filled pub. Good job, Eddie. Yeah. Well, they're all very <laughs> socially... Way to expose, way to expose yeah. yourself in the COVID era. <laughs> socially distanced. We were safely separated, but, but 80% of the people... Yeah, 80% of the people there were United supporters. And they celebrate... If you, if you would... When they were awarded the penalty and then when they went ahead, you would have thought that they were winning the league. And I commented to one of them who was with me, Imagine if 10, 15 years ago, I had told you that you would win a match on the final day of the season, finish third, and you would treat it as this monumental achievement. And it's inconceivable from where they were before. So like United's, the majority of United supporters in a sense, reshaping their expectations for the club has happened pretty quickly. I mean, they've managed to lower their expectations justifiably, but, but, Relative, in a relatively short period of time, have accepted they are not the club that they were. If I were a United supporter now, I think now if they don't finish in the top four next season, then that's a failure. I think that's now what you've established. Speaking of that, can we flip it the other way? So you said about Man City's celebration. What about Villa's celebration? Did you see uh, Roy Keane's uh, oh, remark? Yeah, because it, it, it's, it's kind of true about expectations. You know, like, is Villa staying up that incredible for the players to celebrate like they've just won something because Roy Keane was like imagine if they had won something they probably would have started like murdering each other that, I mean Roy that, Keane that was on my list that was on my list because that popped up that popped up and I saw the Twitter of it I mean they were going insane like I thought, I thought they're gonna start popping out like champagne bottles wasn't the song like wasn't the song they were singing like this is as good as it gets so basically they are acknowledging the one place above being relegated is yeah. the best they're ever going to do. Well, and thanks, thanks to yeah, I mean, his amazing hair. Yeah, <laughs> best hair I mean, in the league. <laughs> well, best hair, best calves too. Amazing legs, and always really? the all. Yeah, yeah, you got to check. Yeah. You got to check out the Grealish legs. He's, he's he doesn't wear. Calves. He doesn't wear his socks high up. Yeah, like, certain for this reason. Yeah, he's definitely better. Off. Better and, than Shakiri. Yeah, and he almost always has a tan that is impossible to achieve in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah. And also Zerdan Shakiri is like five foot three, so you'd expect the, the width to be naturally well, like <laughs> Shakiri Shakiri's like all calf muscle. Like that's yeah. just that's eighty percent of his body. Yeah, I've heard of Swiss cows, but not Swiss calves. Yeah, <laughs> but no, um I don't know. It's I'm torn on that one a little bit. I can understand. I mean, from Roy Keane, it's a little bit you're kind of punching down as Roy Keane there because you know 
wow, you get to, you were part of some of the greatest teams of all time. And now you're there taking shots at players who obviously are nowhere near as good as you were and in sides that were nowhere near as good as yours were either. At this, but if I were a supporter of Aston Villa, would I want the players to survive on the final day and just go, well, we're still shit? <laughs> like, I, I think you would want the players to react as if this is huge for the club. Yeah. It's obviously huge for the club in terms of, A, they stay in the Premier League, all the money that it means to the kind of financial security of the club. And for the players too, because they would have all either left the club or take, had to take pay cuts. So for them, it's, it's, it's not a sort of insignificant moment where you just go, well, we'll be in this league again. Yeah. And I wonder, and I wonder if just the whole situation too kind of adds to it. I mean, like with this whole COVID thing going on, you know, you're locked up for so long, you're probably just so like bent up wanting something to happen, you know, and then at least this maybe was just something they could shoot for, you know, they, they're sitting in isolation for two months and you come out of it thinking like, all right, let's try and, you know, put up some points here and not get relegated and, and have, something to feel good about, you know, after just being in alone for three, four months. And they did, they came out and they did what they had to do to not get relegated. And, you know, maybe it's just like, just like that exasperation of like, ah, oh, it feels good to achieve something in the past six months. Plus they looked like they were down. You know, if you go back a couple yeah. months ago, if you go back to the restart, they looked, they were odds on to be relegated. You would have thought they were going to go down. So in that context, again, to manage to go on a really good run and keep yourselves up. It would just be weird as a player to just react as if it's still disappointing. And they are, it's, they're not, what were their expectations for the season? They weren't, no one was expecting them to be like a top half team. So as soon as you're not putting yourselves in that group, then surviving, you know, survival is the, the most important thing, right? There's no real, I know there's a slight financial difference between finishing say 17th and 12th, but it's not monumental. And you know, no one's going to remember, if anything, as a kind of, as a, if you were a supporter, you could almost argue that for the rest of their lives, Aston Villa supporters will probably remember that final day. Whereas, you know, if you finish 12th or 13th, you'd forget about it probably within six months. I also think staying up in your first season up is critical. Like the amount of teams that do that kind of one season wonder, Norwich, great example at 21 points, like the derbies when they got so few points, but I know Bournemouth just went down, but you look at like their stint and it was all because all they had to do that first season was survive it. And I, I think that matters. And that's what Villa have done. And also the good thing about the way Villa have done it, because like Bournemouth, West Ham, Brighton, Palace, they weren't inconsistent. It's not like someone plummeted at the bottom. They all picked up points at the end. It wasn't like, oh, Villa stayed because Bournemouth lost every single game. It kind of, I think, I think it was a pretty good survival, to be honest. I thought they did pretty well. Um, so, I feel sorry for Bournemouth. Though. They've had some really bad VAR decisions over the past, like, five games. Yeah, I mean, I, as a club, it seems like a nice club. It's nice to have the sort of smaller clubs in the Premier League and, and to show that football isn't just all about huge cities and huge fan bases. At the same time, I don't know how I feel about Eddie Howe. <laughs> kind I'll of. say. Yeah, just, he looks. Oh, go he on. Just, <laughs> whenever I watch him, uh, I, he, he doesn't seem like someone I would get along with, and he seems a little bit too into himself at times. I think, and um, I think he's really this idea that he was the sort of next English tactical genius went to his head a little bit at at different moments, and he's sort of, you know, sort of 
believed his own hype at times. And he's going to be an interesting one because I'm assuming they're going to keep, keep him. But if they were to sack him, it would be interesting to see where he ended up next. And he, he could also be another one of those managers who sort of, you look back in the kind of like sort of David Moyes style of sort of situation where you go, well, there was this period where he achieved really good things at clubs and was thought of as the next big thing. And either you, in David Moyes' case, got the chance, but there's a host of other managers who then never get that chance and it never reappears. Yeah. Eddie Howe's ship may have sailed in terms of being, A, I mean, people were talking about him as a future England manager and then also linking him with big jobs. And both of those might no longer be sort of possibilities for him. You've really got to worry about Bournemouth now because like the team, okay, Eddie Howe might stay, but like you say, I think the ship sailed with Eddie Howe because he had a chance to move, maybe even if he put his hat in for the United job pre Solskjaer. I, I would have said there's a, there's a pretty solid amount of likeliness that he was one of the top candidates for the job when Solskjaer got the job. Um, but the thing is, like Nathan Aki, all these people that they spent like 20, 30 million plus on, they're gone. They've, they've got to be gone in a club well, that's the, got, the what, 20,000 seater? The only reason they might not be gone is in the context of the pandemic, it might be the, one of the best years to go down because you'd have to assume there will be less transfer activity this summer. And so if you did want to try and keep a squad together and have one year of trying to immediately bounce back, this might be the year where you're most likely to be able to hold on to players. Because you're not going to lose revenue either, are you? No one's going to the games. So you can't lose like stadium revenue. Like it's not like Bournemouth having 18,000 is different whilst not having 60, right? For the next like three, four months. Well, apart from the fact that, yeah, I mean, they will just had, they'll, they'll be used to, they will, they will, they will, they will notice less of a difference, but at the same time, they're probably operating with, you know, finer margins. So mm. that that drop in revenue may be much more important to Bournemouth than it is to bigger clubs. You know, United can eat the cost of, of playing behind closed doors. For smaller clubs, even though the, the loss of revenue is far, far smaller, it's probably more noticeable. Yeah. I mean, wrap up the season, if it, if it was me wrapping it up, I'm I'm pretty bummed out by it to be honest. I think it, a lot of the things that have been interesting in the past have been over quite early, um, and the COVID thing kind of messed it up. The slowdown, you know. I think teams like Sheffield United were unlucky because they did have momentum pre-lockdown, then they came out a bit with none. Uh, it's the fan thing as well. It's all been a little bit sad to watch football on TV. Like, for me, I've been pretty bummed out by the end of the season. I don't know what other people think as, like, a, a I kind of like it. watching it with no... I, I'm, I'm, to me, almost, you could convince me that sports now should just always be played behind closed doors. But in facilities intended for that, I mean, I guess it might be a good way to change the topics. But, like, when you see what the NBA has planned and where they're going to play their games, to me, that might end up providing a better... For the person watching from home providing a much better experience than you would have in a, you know, in a packed arena or a packed stadium in the case of football. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we should probably wrap up. But so the only two things I had left were, one, I have to point out Eddie's hatred of Jamie Vardy and how inaccurate he's been. So I have a chat from Eddie. Well, first off, this year when we did our fantasy football league, 
Eddie kept trying to trade me forwards because he kept implying that Jamie Vardy isn't a number one forward. No, no, so no. I want to say this in context. He isn't a hold premier on, hold on. forward. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> he's not a number one. He's the number one <laughs> Yeah, he's the number no, one. That fantasy football prediction on my part was definitely a bad one. But my, my, me trying to make moves with you was more, Hallelujah. so to speak, <laughs> was, more, was more about the fact that you only had Jamie Vardy and that I was trying to give you more depth. That was, that was more the issue. How much depth do I need when I have the golden boot winner? Well, I mean, that is depth, depth of like two forwards. Did you win the league? I chose to not continue playing the league once COVID happened. So, so. no, you didn't win the league. <laughs> So as hey. it turns out, but as wait, it turns out, me, hey, like golf, hey, like golf, he's allowed to pull out the cup because of COVID, yeah. right? And then let's let's go back to 2016. I think during yeah, it had to be Euros, right? During the Euros, yeah. yeah, it was definitely yep. a reaction to me watching yep. Jamie Vardy play for England in the Euros. So Eddie says he isn't that good. Sooner or later, the world will realize he sucks. Probably by next season. <laughs> Well, so I mean, I guess couldn't have been more wrong on that one. Well, it's all relative, right? I wasn't implying that he literally can't play football, but I guess you could argue that the a lot of the world did realize because his England career has come to an end. I know that he chose to retire, but he retired because he never played. So, I think I think there's some other. I don't think he's awful. I think he's a bit of a flat track bully, and he's definitely a one trick pony. Just to throw a few, throw a few expressions in there to describe. Got any more? Go on, give me two more. <laughs> yeah. He's a he's one a, hit wonder. Uh, what just, do you? Yeah. Ask? Well, he's not a, a one hit wonder. In the bottle, is that it? Yeah, There's he's a just a little bolt in the bottle. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, I guess the so thing guess... that Jamie, the most surprising thing about Jamie Vardy in some ways is is the fact that he hasn't seemed to have a real drop off in his pace. I guess he deserves credit for that. Maybe it's, it's all the. Maybe it's all the Red Bulls he drinks and stuff, or whatever it is, his awful pregame rituals. But after so. sacrificing a lamb and having a Red Bull, Jamie Vardy walks onto the pitch. But no, I just, I don't, I genuinely do not think that Jamie Vardy, for example, is a top quality. You know, I wouldn't, if I were in charge of a, a big team, I wouldn't go out and try and sign Jamie Vardy. I think he's a very good player. I think he's. You know, he's the kind of player who is suited to being the linchpin of a side. So staying at a club like Leicester, where they will they will literally build a team around making him a success. And I can say this as a, as a Blackburn supporter. We've had many players who thrived playing for Blackburn. And, but in situations where they were a central and key figure and the team was built to make them succeed. And as soon as they went elsewhere things fell apart for them. And I would put Jamie Vardy in that category. You always wonder about players like that, don't you? Like, does Jamie Vardy need to move on to kind of prove that he's better than he is at Leicester? Kind of like the Messi thing at Barca, right? Does he have to go somewhere else? Yeah, you know, do they have to go somewhere else to show that they're an incredible player? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really want to throw Jamie Vardy and, and Messi into the same conversation. But... What, about, what about Tom Brady? <laughs> yeah, can we have Tom Brady in there? Is it the system or is it the player? We'll find out. We will find out. We yeah, find so out. I guess the, the only other thing I, I had about the, the Premier League is I didn't realize how quickly it's starting back up. That's pretty awesome. It, it's literally, it's, it's what, like it's, a month, month and a half? Six and weeks, back. I think. Six, seven weeks, That's yeah. Crazy. I can't I mean, imagine they don't players have, are happy about that. They don't have a choice because 
Yeah, they're I know. Supposed, I, they're supposed to be having the Euros next summer, so. Well, it doesn't stop, does it? You know, August is Champions League, so some clubs are actually not even done yet. Yeah. Um, so, so, all right. So, quickly, what's your bet for next year? Who wins? Oh, Man City. City. <laughs> any any play on Liverpool? No. Well, I mean, we can look. Well, they're coming if, second. I mean, like, if that's what yeah. you mean, I'd probably give Man City. If you're going to tell me like a like a points kind of over under, I'd, I'd probably take you know a minimum amount. I'd probably say something like four, you know, four or five points. They'll win the league by. How about Man U in the top three? Yeah, I can. Yeah, see that. I'd feel comfortable with that. I'd even make a bold prediction. I can see Liverpool finishing outside the top two. Wow. See, that's good. If if I had to make a bold prediction, I could I could see that happening. He hates Liverpool. I love it. <laughs> it's not hatred, uh, and it's definitely not a hatred of of Klopp no, no. or any of their players. But um, I have yeah, a partial I, hatred for Jordan Henderson. In fairness, well, yeah, player, <laughs> play, you know, player of the year, Jordan Henderson. Yeah, but he needs to go to another club to really be top class. He's now there is a conspiracy <laughs> theory that I can get on board with. I think Guardiola is a hundred percent right that there seems to be some sort of Liverpool bias in the individual player awards. Oh, I agree with that. I remember seeing the stats as well. Like, what was it? Like, Man City win the league and Mane gets it or something like that. But... Oh, yeah. It's, uh, three seasons ago, you had City winning the league comfortably, Liverpool finishing fourth, and Salah got it. That's it. Last year, obviously, City, City pipped Liverpool. Van Dijk got it. And this year, Liverpool win the league and Henderson gets it. And that's not to say that any of those players weren't deserving of the award. But it does seem that when Liverpool won it this year, it's like, well, we have to pick a Liverpool player because they won the league and we need to pick a player who we think was in, sort of essential in that. And then, but when City win it, it's sort of, well, but were, were there any outstanding individual performers within that team or are they just a really good team? And it seems to, it seems to flip from one season to another as to how they're determining who, who, who deserves the, the award. Yeah. All right. So let's switch from a sport that's finishing to a sport that's starting. Um, and we can kind of, I guess, for the American sports, now that they're all starting up around the same time, we can kind of, we don't have to talk about them all at once. We kind of go through. So maybe today we can do baseball and then next one do maybe uh, hockey and NBA because I think they actually start up. I know hockey starts up on Saturday, so we can do a little bit of that. And I can give you my great picks because Eddie's so interested in the NHL. So. Yeah, I can just um, say that my, my hockey takes are going to be really short. Well, I'll give you some great things to bet on that clearly won't win, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so let's, I guess let's start with baseball. Um, so it was supposed to start in March, gets pushed back. Uh, so they're starting now. They've played the first few games. You have the season is shortened to 60 games uh, as opposed to 162, which I think is awesome. Uh, I as someone who used to watch baseball, I used to watch baseball all the time when I was younger. I mean, I was a really avid Yankee fan. I used to watch almost every game, every night it would be on our TV. But after a while, it, it, it just wears you down. Like, it's, it's not fun. It's not enjoyable after a while. It's like, it gets so boring sometimes. And I really haven't watched baseball very much in the past seven, eight years. But now if you told me it's only 60 games and each game really matters, I think that's kind of cool. Um, the other thing I think that's neat is the rule change now that a pitcher has to face at least three batters, whereas before they bring a pitcher in for one batter, 
take them out, put a new pitcher in, face two batters, take them out. You're, it's like 15, 20, 30 minutes. Like games would be hours and hours. So this will kind of speed up the games a little bit. But I think the fact now that every game kind of means something that you'll see, I, I think it's just going to make it more competitive. Um, so I think that part's cool. They're, they're using the DH, a designated hitter in both leagues this year, which is cool. That's going to add some, some firepower. Um, the whole rule about if it goes to extras after a certain amount of time, they put a, uh, a player on second base to start the inning so that they could potentially not go into 17, 18 inning games. I think that's kind of neat. Um, so on paper, it seems like baseball could be fun and interesting, but what happens in reality is what we see today where at least what 12 Florida Marlins have already tested positive for COVID. They've canceled their home opener game, I think, which is today. And they've canceled the Phillies Yankees game because that's who the Marlins were playing were the Phillies. So, I mean, we can talk about the NBA bubble, which is a much better idea um, on Thursday, but like you're already seeing that, is this going to be a possibility where you have 30 teams traveling around the country? And I mean, baseball players are pretty notorious for playing their game and then going out and doing whatever they want, going to restaurants, staying up all night, you know, going to clubs and things like that. How is this going to work? If, if one weekend you're already getting 12 players tested positive on a team, I mean, maybe they're going for herd immunity the first month, so then their team's going to go for playoffs. I don't know. I, I mean, know yeah, move, maybe, maybe but... it's a tactical move by the Marlins. Yeah. For me, yeah. though, for me, though, as a Brit looking at baseball, it, surely it's already open before it's begun. We've just had a look at the Premier League where they do travel around. Like, don't get me wrong, like flying's different, but they do travel around and Premier League tests everyone and we got what like a couple of tests that were positive so they showed there's a way of doing it I guess but, but, that, but surely, but surely the season's already yeah but surely the season's already over I mean 13 players positive they're not going to have any sort of team so they're not going to be competitive which I think we've spoken about this before like in American sports it matters more when certain players aren't playing you basically become a much worse team if they're not playing so is it I mean you you You've got to like postpone it again, right? Or what do you do? I don't think they'll stop it. I think you. I think when you've restarted the league, you have to do so knowing that there is a very good chance that something like this happens. So for them to have started the league and then stop this, it's basically them saying, "Well, we crossed our fingers and hoped that no one was going to get it." That just wasn't realistic. So short of someone becoming seriously ill who's involved in the teams and then being able to point, you know, either a player or a member's staff, but. I think this just had to be expected. And it's also pretty lucky the Marlins aren't good. So it helps that it's not one of the it's helps that it's not one of the teams that are kind of few. No, I mean realistically, it would be a it would be a really different story if it was like the Dodgers, like half of the Dodgers are gone. That would that would be a really different thing. If you thought that the the sort of World Series was was going to go to a different team as a result of the virus, which may end up happening. I don't know what they'll do. Like, if you get to the World Series and then half your team gets COVID, I like, what what do they do then? Do you have to forfeit a World Series game? Do they postpone the World Series for as long as it takes for you know fourteen days for them to get back and up and running? That I don't know. But I would hope that they have contingency plans for all of these things in place. And, that's, and that we, the, we the, talked about that before, like in purposely infecting players. If you have a big bet on, you know, like a team to win, then you just like well, go I don't, in and start I don't calling around the, the doctors, hotel room or the something. The swapping the uh, blood vials, you know, that kind of thing. I don't yeah, want to imply that. Yeah. No, but, but, here's, here, but what here's, I don't get is, 
logistically, real quick for me, logistically, I mean, if they're going to 14-day quarantine and you're only playing 60 games, so you say you're playing three or four a week, then they're going to be missing, what, six, seven games? Like, how – if, well, if probably, this happened – I mean, they're probably going to – If this happened once, if it's only happened once already, it's going to happen more times. So how many times are you going to keep canceling and rescheduling and postponing games? Like, this, this season's going to be a disaster. I, mean, I guess they'll just have to play like quadruple headers at some moment, but no, I, I guess they, I hope that they 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 must have assumed that this was going to happen. And look, European football leagues for the most part were just really lucky that this was never a major issue. That key players basically avoided it. There were moments when they were coming back in that you know there was player there were players testing positive, and the teams themselves then had to go into quarantine and stuff. But it never happened to a team in the, you know, just ahead. Like if you imagine, say a week ago, if a bunch of United players had tested positive and then they'd have to sit out a crucial match, something like that. But I mean, the NBA, it's just easier because the idea of operating in a dome, that's going to solve so many of the problems, like to, to operate in this sort of isolated environment. I think Why? baseball just, just has to accept that, that this is going to happen. Why isn't yeah, baseball I mean, being played in a specific area like I, I i thought they thought about it and you could do it easily i mean you could just play in florida and in arizona i mean i like i live in arizona i know there are tons of the spring training diamonds i mean remember there's no fans so you don't need a stadium with a huge seating capacity so you could play in these these spring training facilities that are really really nice they're great facilities they're just they can only hold you know a, a quarter of a, a normal uh, capacity of a MLB stadium, but like, why could like, you could have played in two or three designated spots, kind of like the NHL is doing. The NHL decided they're going to play in Edmonton and Toronto, and they're going to put, you know, the teams up in the same hotels, basically, have them play and practice on certain time schedules, try and restrict them from going out as much as possible, or if they do, they have like designated restaurants that they can go to that you know have specific protocols, I guess, for them. But this. Th it sounds like baseball to me is just a free-for-all where they're like, ah, it'll be fine. Like, let's just go for it. And it's, I don't think it's going to work. I think this is going to be a, a nightmare of a season. Well, the difference Especially between like things like, even little things like, what about like pitching rotations, right? I mean, you have a guy test positive, he throws off your pitching rotation. Then like, those are little things in baseball that matter a lot. Yeah. Do you think it I mean, changes I, the NFL? Do you think the NFL now thinks that these bubbles almost have to be done? Well, I think the NFL is a little different because you only play one game a week and you can stay in your home spot. So you can stay in your location, contain yourself in like a mini bubble and then just travel, play your game and come back. I think that's a lot more feasible than constantly traveling, playing two games, traveling somewhere else, playing two games. And the other thing I already saw about the NFL is they said, I think it just popped up today or yesterday that if a player tests positive for COVID and he got it in like a non like work environment kind of like if, if they find out it's from him going out or something then they could get dock pay or like like disciplinary action from that which baseball isn't doing and that's you know who knows yeah i mean the nba was in a situation where obviously it was towards the end of the season so you're just talking about a few regular season games and then the playoffs so it's a lot easier to ask players i know that if you end up sort of making a like a long playoff run you will have been there for several months but it's still not like having to sit in a 
you know, you would have had to ask baseball players, their, I guess their families all get to move. Who's paying for that? You know, like if a player, if you, if you live normally in Toronto and now you're going to have to play games in only in Arizona or Florida, are you paying rent? You can move your whole family to, to Florida and who, who handles that? I mean, there would be just so many issues there to, to try and figure out, but I don't think it impacts the NFL. I think NFL players already accept the fact that they have huge CTE risks. I think trying to convince them that they can't play football because of COVID, it's probably, I think they're going to, ex- for the most part, think that, I mean, I know that the, the Chiefs player became the first one this week to opt to take the NFL's offer of opting out of the season. So he took whatever, I think it was $150,000 or whatever. Is this... was, that, was that Mahomes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> An absolute Patrick, Patrick, Patrick Mahomes signed, signed a massive contract and then decides to opt out. <laughs> Decides, well, yeah. You know, uh, I, uh, yeah, he read one of those articles about how you don't get happier after like $100,000 and just decided, no, I'll, I'll stop playing football and I'll take the 150 and, and just live my best life. I just don't get, like, I don't get baseball. I don't get why it hasn't done it. If, they, if they're condensing the season, they're openly changing the way schedules happen to accommodate you know, COVID and doing it quicker and more kind of intensely, I guess. Well, the speed of the, the speed of the games is in part in relation to obviously trying to deal with the compacted season, but it's also just because baseball games have been getting longer and longer and longer. And it's awful. Like the sit and watch a Yankees Red Sox game that goes on for at least four hours in recent years. It's just painful. And to, and the fact that you'll get a pitcher coming in to face one batter so you'll have to wait while the the you know the manager comes out makes the pitching change the guy runs in warm takes his you know warm-up pitches and then faces may potentially throws one pitch and then you go now let's do that whole thing again i know you guys have enjoyed that one pitch that you got to see in the last 10 minutes but maybe you'll get to see another one five minutes from now if you're lucky that sounds freaking Oh, yeah. like, is that just because and baseball is so data-driven now as, it matters or what? Yeah. Well, you know my say, theory. Watching, of... watching that was almost as boring as listening Eddie say that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know my theory on baseball managers and the fact that I think that almost anyone could be a, a major league baseball manager. And, I, and the fact that they won't be able to just make those pointless pitching changes is going to remove like one of the few things they could really do anyway. So now, I mean, they'll just be disappointed that they, they, you know, like they just have to sit and watch the games like the rest of us for the most part. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, it's literally you set your lineup, which is a pretty easy, which is a pretty easy thing to set up. Like if you know even a little bit about baseball, like this guy's fast and gets on base. Let's put him in early. This guy, you know, can can drive the ball, bring in bring in runs. So let's put him in the middle of the lineup the shitty batter he goes at the end like that's pretty easy to do and then now for the pitching part it's like you have your starting pitchers and then when you have to bring in a relief pitcher it's who's the most rested healthiest best relief pitcher I can bring in and then your closer is going to be your closer you know who that is I mean there's not much to the manager side now when you're not doing like oh this guy is great against lefties who like to go opposite field I'm going to bring him in for one at bat you know that when you take that away you're taking away a lot of that strategy. So I definitely think we can put Sam on a plane, send him over, and he can start his uh, manager trial in the MLB. 
Yeah, you could start. You could start. You could start with a. You could become a manager of the Marlins. You'll get in a nice fourteen-day period to read as much as you can about baseball, and then from there, fourteen days from now, you'll probably be ready to go. And they're. I mean, they're gonna. They're gonna be terrible anyway. So you could maybe make them slightly more terrible or slightly less terrible. Who knows? Yeah, or I could try new things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and all you have to do is you have to play either the analytics card really heavy or the anti-analytics card really heavy. You just have yeah, to be could, really oh, adamant I'm, about one or the other. Oh, I'm high the... into big data or I don't, no. I don't think. No, I'm, I'm I, like, as I'm getting interviewed, as like I get on the plane over to Miami, I'd be like, I'm all about gut feelings with this sport. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I got a good the... feeling. I got a good feeling about this guy. He's you never thrown my hand in his life. Doesn't matter. He's going to do it. <laughs> you got to be the Charles Barkley of baseball and just start saying that analytics, even if it's right, analytics ruin baseball. And then just, just go from there and just say, you never look at any stat, not a single one. Usually when you're controversial, people ignore the background to the controversy. They just like the controversy in itself. <laughs> so as long as I say controversial things, like even though my team have COVID, I think they can play. <laughs> Everyone would be like, whoa, I wouldn't, this I wouldn't, guy whoa, must whoa, whoa. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Hold on a second. <laughs> We're not suggesting you become some like anti-vaxxer. <laughs> would I, would the, I, I, meant, I meant the <laughs> analytics of you baseball, not, not the analytics for the COVID yeah. pandemic. I don't want you going into the, the, Oh, I could rejects. be like super analytical for the COVID. <laughs> I mean, you, you'll become Donald Trump's favorite baseball manager. There's some, there might be something to that. Like, you'll be the first ever, like, you'll be like Marlins manager and vice president. It will be quite the, quite the situation. This all happened within like seven days of landing. <laughs> like, it's been it's been a really good time actually. I kind of enjoy I enjoy the idea, except the COVID part. That's that's less. Uh, well, you don't um, believe exciting. that's a thing anyway, right? So. I, I know this is episode one, but I don't need to sit here and say I'm an anti vax <laughs> No, no, it's too late. It's, been, it's, it's been too late. Okay, too, we okay, we too late. We don't want the audience to hate him after the first episode. Well, <laughs> we're going to have to do a lot more than not talk about how he doesn't believe in COVID for them to not hate him. <laughs> he doesn't believe in COVID, but he gets adamant when people don't wear masks to the point where he'll defriend them and shame them on public Zooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be furious. No, no. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, I don't have any opinions on the actual who I think is going to win or things like that for baseball because I don't follow it enough. I mean, obviously, like Sam said, you have your three or four top teams that are going to be super competitive. Um, yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the Dodgers, interesting. The, the Dodgers it, are it, stacked. It, yeah. I mean, the only interesting thing is now they've expanded the playoffs which means you could have a team sneak in and just get on a super hot run and have another team get COVID. And, you know, next thing you know, they're, they're moving their way in. I think that could definitely happen, but you have the Dodgers are stacked and, you know, you, you have your, the same teams basically, you know, in the past few years that have been dominating, I think are going to continue to Yeah. Dominate. And maybe we'll, yeah, maybe we'll bring, I mean, I, I'm in total agreement with you that like the baseball season overall just, it's too long to follow for me. It's not my main sport. And so it, there was a point in my life where I kind of had to give up on following it because it's just too many games and too much to follow. And you can't sort of passively be a baseball fan who keeps up with things. So the shift, the 60 game shift at least means that you can kind of pay pretty good attention to it. And also that means it just makes games meaningful. 
Like every game will be meaningful basically for a team. Whereas when you play all, you know, you, everyone knows you're going to lose, you know, dozens of games. So the fact that you go and play the Pirates on a like Tuesday on a doubleheader and you lose both the games, it's not going to matter come the end of the season. In this new 60-game format, it might matter. Like it's going to be one or, you know, it's only going to be a handful of games separating the best team and the worst team in some divisions. So Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know if that is actually – how kind of players get like how they feel when they're playing games but you know like in a 162 game season you have a lot of four game series where like you go play a team for four games straight i feel like there's probably a few times where you get into a game you get down five nothing and you're like well you know we got three more against this team let's just win two out of the next three and, and we'll be fine you know and you kind of just not that you throw in the bag but you're obviously not pushing it as much. And then again, the manager isn't going to make these like crucial pitching changes and things like that. They've kind of just, you know, thrown the towel in and said like, if we, if we bring in the towel, was we probably, throwing inning, in the towel is probably better than throwing in the bag. It probably does. You can't do that. You know, like if you're down yeah. for nothing, you have to really be like, Hey, listen, we need this game. I mean, we can't. Oh, yeah. And for sure. And going up. back to man, going back to managers, it will drastically change, you know, what decisions they make. Like, do you take out a pitcher, you know, you, whereas you might pull the starter more easily thinking, let's just save him for a, a game, you know, five days from now. Now you might think, no, we need another one, especially with the limitations on being able to bring in relief pitchers and how long they have to be there for. Now you think, okay, we need we need to get another inning out of our starter. So yeah, I'm sure it will change a lot. Obviously, you know, baseball fans are really into statistics and the history of the game, and this is one season that will just throw away, you know, like all of those kind of records and things that people can play for are gone. From a career standpoint, it probably means a lot of people will miss out on records that they could have otherwise broken because they've suddenly lost 100 games from their career. But mm. if you set that aside, it's probably <laughs> wow. for the best. I, 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 I've got nothing to chase for in baseball, and I feel upset at this. Yeah, if you just remove the <laughs> crippling disappointment of no longer being able to break a record that would have maybe, you know, you would have held on to at least for the rest of your life, if you throw that out of the way, it will make me, a person who barely cares about baseball, watch a few more baseball games. And that's why I think <laughs> you're well, right, though, I, I about think... the scenarios. You're right about the new formats coming out of this pandemic. Like uh, in rugby, they just announced the eight team tournament um, to replace the autumn internationals. So they're going to have the six nations. So um, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, France, Italy, and then Japan and Fiji are going to enjoy uh, join into this like eight team uh, like I guess round robin or whatever they're going to do with it, but what they're going to do is try and centralise some of the games in certain places. So they're going to have like Twickenham as a place, the Millennium Stadium as a place, and that's going to be a completely new format. And I think that's kind of, you know, regardless of your opinions on whether that's a good thing or not, I just think it's good that very old sports try to find a way of adapting to a modern age. And I, I just think that's kind of a good thing. And yeah, like and the interesting thing will be from the rule changes that are being put in place, how many of those will survive after things like return to normal, whenever that is. Say in football, are we going to go back to three substitutions instead of five? Or is five now, is that just going to be the thing? Because if you go two or three seasons allowing five substitutions, it might change the way, for example, uh, teams 
build their squads. And in baseball, the same idea. If you don't need to use relief pitchers in the same way that you used them before, you probably will have fewer relief pitchers. And you probably and maybe those relief pitchers will now get paid more because they have a more significant role in the team. And so maybe to then try and change back to the old ways, you know, two or three years from now, teams will be saying, but hold on a second, we've, we've completely changed the way we've approached our squad building because we had to adapt to these changes and you can't just switch it back. And all of a sudden we've got to pick up a few more relievers and we have this one relief pitcher who now is only going to face like one batter every two games and we're paying him millions of dollars to do that. Like, Yeah. And actually the, the other one too is um, in horse racing, they're giving them the jockeys a two pound allowance now. And I've heard several interviews now where jockeys are like, this is great. Like you don't think two pounds is a lot and that doesn't mean anything to you, but as a jockey, you know, it's like, they're like, these two pounds are amazing. I can feel so much better, so much healthier, you know, even with these little two. And they, they're already saying that they are really, really hoping they don't go back to what it was before COVID. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I think some of these rules that are coming out of this could be longer term rules if, it turns out that people like them, I guess, is the main thing at the end of the day, is if the fans really hate the rules, then they're going to get switched back. But um, so, yeah, I think that we can kind of transition out of baseball. Um, we can get into horse racing in a second, but the only thing I did want to bring up is Alex Smith was cleared to play football again. Um, and this, to me, is just crazy because for anyone who's watched the ESPN documentary on what happened to him, uh, that was like the most amazing documentary I've seen for an injury ever. And it's just a crazy story. So Sam, I don't know, do you know anything about this story? No, 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 I wouldn't, I want to okay. explain. Yeah. So Alex Smith, he was a quarterback for the Redskins, um, used to be on Eddie's beloved Niners. Um, Hold on, the, the Washington football team. Oh, sorry. Shit. I already messed it up. All right. Wipe, wipe the podcast. Well, no, wait, again. but what do you say though? <laughs> but what do you say? Well, because he played set when on they fire, were the Redskins. Set the laptop on fire. <laughs> He, he played when they were called the Redskins. So wouldn't you say he played for the Washington Redskins, now the Washington football team? Well, it's not like the artist formerly known as Prince. Like we, you would probably just go with the Washington football team, wouldn't you? You go with what they're relevant for. Okay. Well, in 2018, he broke his tibula and fibula. And he had 17 surgeries and had what they call like a battle with a life-threatening infection. Uh, and there was a point where they basically thought he was one, not going to keep his leg and two could potentially die from this infection. That's how serious of an injury it was. And I'm going to share my screen. So, cause I want you to see the pictures they showed in the documentary of what his leg looked like. And I want you to, to give us your live reaction of, uh, what it looks like. So here's the first one. That's what the infection of his leg looked like. You're muted. We've ruined it. He's, he's not. He's not no, muted. No, no. He's just. He's it, fainted. He's fainted. It, it, I fainted. <laughs> it genuinely looks like a shark bite. That's yeah. The oh, I think that looks way worse than a shark bite. There's just black. It, that looks wait, like someone. That looks uh, like someone I mean, got bitten by a shark on the, the top of Mount. The Everest. bottom half looks like like an Egyptian mummy kind of thing. It's absolutely it's awful. gross. That's okay, gross. So, and that's not even the so, worst. That's not. Wait, even I'm the not worst. there yet. So that's the infection. So what they had to do is, is basically go in and just remove the infection. That was like the only reason, the only chance he had to save the leg. And this all happened within like a day or two. Like it went from 
he did the surgery, everything went fine. And then he got infected, started to feel bad, feel bad. And then like this happened. And then a day later, it was like how disgusting this is. This is what they did to serve, to keep the leg. Chop they the removed off. everything. That's <laughs> I bought that in my local butchers. Like what's going on here? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> no, I think that it looks yeah, it's fake. It's a weird local butcher. It, it looks fake. It honestly that's doesn't his, look real. But yeah, that's his awful. real leg. And to think that, yeah, to think that he's gone from that situation to potentially playing again in the NFL is unbelievable. I mean, the I mean, scarring. But not to, me- not oh, to mention, like, not only this part of it, but he broke his tibula and fibula and has, like, these crazy rods and things and screws and everything in his leg. Like, that alone is crazy to think he could come back and play. But then to have all of that and have his leg basically be reduced to a couple of veins and a bone i mean like you have to redevelop all that muscle i mean that's crazy and also just from his standpoint and i guess this is soon you know yet to be seen but psychologically to think that you can get back into a game and have players coming to tackle you and come in around your knees and your legs that's having gone through all of that and also being in a situation you know like he's totally financially secure there's no motivation to go back out there and to play to win. I mean, obviously he wanted to prove something to himself and he loves football. So I get why he would want to go back, but to psychologically get over that kind of trauma and think, no, no, I want to go back out there and I want to go through, I want to run the risk that this could happen to me again because it's worth it. But do you think in his head, he's going, it can't be any worse than what I went through these past two years. No, I guess it feels, he probably is like someone who feels, you know, you got struck by lightning. And you're like, it's surely it can happen again, <laughs> but it, but it can. And I mean, I really, I hope. I'm not saying that I in any way would 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 like to see him get injured. It's awful, and he also seems like a like a really nice guy. And in the in the documentary, I mean, a op- allowing yourself to be all of that to be publicly shown. I mean, if you haven't watched the documentary, or I mean, you should definitely watch it because it's. But also just to see him kind of processing it and dealing with it and trying to come back. I mean, it's it's admirable. Who does, yeah. is, is, sorry, is he a free agent? No. Like, he hasn't been picked up by anyone. You, know, you no, said no, it was clear to play, so I'm assuming he's it's still just on like the, he's available. He's still, on, he's still on the Washington football team. He's still, uh, he's, he's still signed with them. God, that, and, that, yeah, that, thank you. That name is just and, catchy. I'm really and I mean, he, he has a chance. If he can get back to what he was at, I mean, personally, I think he's better than Haskins is. If, if you can get him back to what he was before he was injured, he's much better than Haskins is right now. Not to say Haskins could be better down the road, but I mean, Haskins coming off didn't have the great, didn't have a great year. Right. I mean, and when Alex Smith was in his prime, he was pretty good. I mean, he gets ripped on for being that, you know, like he's a game manager, game manager, but he was good at it. And like they won games and, but my opinion as, as a, as a Niners fan who obviously went through the Alex Smith era, and then watching him with the Chiefs. To me, my opinion of Alex Smith is, I don't think Smith is going to win you a lot of games, but he's rarely going to be the reason you lost. Like, I think that's, like, where he stands as a player. Like and a I don't consistent. Think, yeah, and he takes... I mean, I don't think you'll win a Super Bowl with Alex Smith. I mean, the Niners got relatively close in that NFC Championship game against the Giants. But then you're also talking about, like, he played in an NFC Championship game and didn't complete like a pass to a wide receiver until I think until overtime, but he may not have even completed a pass to a wide receiver. 
but I think it was in overtime that he first managed to do that. So I think, and that's obviously part of that's your game plan and the conditions that they were playing in, but it's also kind of revealing about put the Chiefs would, if the Chiefs had not moved on to Mahomes and if Alex Smith was still their quarterback, they would have not won the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, I mean, it's, I will say the documentary definitely is worth watching. And I was never a big Alex Smith fan, but after watching that, I kind of became more of a fan because he did kind of get forced out of situations because there was these, you know, up and coming great quarterbacks, you know, with Mahomes and then what with Kaepernick, right? Kind of forced him out, all of that. Yeah, you can definitely put Kaepernick in the same class as Mahomes. (laughs) Well, I'll never put him after having to watch him not run in the touchdown to win the Super Bowl at the Moose and costing me tons of tons of money and and tons of tons of excitement that could have happened had he just ran the ball the three yards to freaking get the touchdown instead of throwing to Michael Crabtree seven times but uh yeah I mean like I definitely became more of a fan of him like you have to respect what he's doing and I mean, to a point where is it is it almost just crazy what he's trying to do? Like, I I agree. I I actually think like uh, the, the the medicine, the surgery, like every single bit of the health and the recovery is incredible. But I just think psychologically for him, as Eddie was saying, that's insane to think that you could take that hit again. But also, I would just think from like a humanity perspective, if I'm a guy running at Alex Smith, I I almost wouldn't want to hit him that hard because if you're the guy, maybe that causes that again. Maybe yeah, maybe the maybe they don't need like a pocket anymore because they know he's just going to get lightly touched or something yeah. like maybe that. Maybe like pre pre game, like like in the coin toss or stuff, he he shakes their hands and he goes, oh, "I'm so glad I had such a horrific leg injury. It was such a freak accident, and I I've gone through months of rehab. I nearly died. I nearly lost my leg, but it's going to be great playing you guys." Yeah, it's yeah, just, it's like. Doctor told me if I take one more pretty bad hit that like I literally could die on the field. But you know, good luck, man. I hope to see you out there. <laughs> play hard. Play hard. And, and I guess here you want to be, be the, the guy that kills me. <laughs> here will be the test. He's been cleared to play again. If you're him, are you trying to are you trying to prove a point to yourself that you've totally overcome the injury and in a sense reaching the point where you could play again is the is the win, or does he legitimately want to play NFL games again? And once he starts, once he gets into like practices where he'll take some contact and there are bodies like moving around him and flying around him, will he still think at that moment, yeah, I want, I want to do this again? If he does, it's incredible. Can't, can't, can't I, I don't think like I would fishing. do it. Can't you just go into like fishing or something? Can't you just realize that you're, the, the scenario is incredible. Everything about this is fantastic, but maybe I should lay off on the sports that deliberately try to obliterate my legs. Like, yeah, I mean, I have no, no like, idea what the risk of re-injury. I don't know if having broken his leg in that way, if that means he's more susceptible to have another leg break. I don't know what that situation is. I mean, I know that's one of those things everyone says, like when you break your blade, like break a bone, it like comes back stronger and stuff, all that. I don't know if that's the case when you've had flesh-eating bacteria wasting away on your muscles and when you have several metal rods holding everything together. But maybe he's in a situation where the doctors are sold to him, like, look, unless... It took a freak accident to have this happen to you in the first place, and it would take another one of the same severity and with the same sort of vicious impact from multiple sides for this to happen to you again. And if, you, if you're in that situation, and he's obviously played football at a high level for a long time, maybe you think, well, this doesn't happen very often, so it probably won't happen to me. 
I, I mean, speaking speaking as a physiologist, I mean, I I don't think the issue for me is it like whether he's going to get injured again. It's is he going to be able to compete at the level he was? Because I mean, part of the issue is like Sam just saw the picture. I mean, they had to take different muscle and different tendons from other parts of his body and basically replace it back onto his leg. So like, that's not the normal muscle that was there. So how that, how that muscle then like regenerates and grows, is it going to be exactly how the actual muscle that was there is supposed to be? You know what I mean? Like just the, the sheer logistics of whether physiologically his body is going to be normal again, you know, and, and we can argue this, we already argued this when we talked about this, several months ago when we first saw it, like he was kind of a running quarterback, not obviously as much as Mahomes and stuff, but he did have a lot of plays where he would get outside the pocket. They, they, uh, when he was on the Niners, like they actually had plays where, you know, he was running and, and doing some option stuff. So like, it's not like he's a purely pocket passer. So like, he still has to a little tiny bit rely on his legs. Well, you, you might be like now. Brady, just... but that's, but now if that's the case, is is he as good, is going to be anywhere as good as he was? Do you know what I mean? So like that, I think is going to play into it. And I kind of agree. Like I don't know if he's going back into this just to get on the field in maybe preseason, not to during preseason actually, but to get on the field during training and be like, I did it, I made it back, I'm at a level, I think I'm still pretty good, you know, like I'm still in here zipping the balls, I'm good, I'm done. Or if zipping, he really zipping does zipping the balls. Yeah, he's zipping the balls. He's zipping them in to the receivers. I'm back here zipping the balls. <laughs> zipping the receivers. And I've balls. also been playing football. <laughs> or if he really does want to go out and try and win a Super Bowl, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what that's going to be yet. So, but yeah, I just thought we had to bring that up because I wanted Sam to see how horrific those images were, and I cannot believe they showed it on the documentary that was well we can awesome. we can turn that it we can turn that into a weekly segment where we just show sam horrific. sam yeah <laughs> but the, the thing rude. is for me even as like a, a fan like going the other way i wouldn't want to watch alex smith now because at some point i all i'm going to be doing is focused on whether that leg is in like 14 pieces on the floor after he gets up like, yeah and you have players who happens like Gibral Cisse, right he who's a, a uh, he broke his leg badly twice yeah, it it for me, I can't watch that again. I, I wouldn't be able to watch truly Alex Smith throw a pass. I'd be more concerned with well, what the, if he was what, yeah, what if he was that. really zipping those balls? <laughs> if he was zipping those balls, you would be you would be all over it, Sam. I mean, you want to yeah. see a guy zip the balls at the best. Yeah, but I I don't want to see a guy go through what <laughs> you saw on the video. So when we have the toss up here, you can read into that one. But when we have the toss up, you can. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with um, making sure he's okay. But no, 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 just like as a summation from me, it's pretty incredible just to see what you've shown and the fact that in any way, shape or form, you're cleared to play sport, let alone be alive and that kind of thing. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll save, I guess, the NBA and, and NHL for, for next podcast. But so let's switch into horse racing and we'll let... Eddie have his I told you so when enable romped home into King George. And before I let Eddie talk, I just want to say when Frankie Tatori was riding a navel and turned around and gave like a three-second stare into Ryan Moore, the only thing that 
makes it less humorous is that Ryan Moore is a man of absolutely no expression and emotion. So it probably had no effect on him. He probably, he probably didn't, didn't even realize <laughs> that he was getting stared at. But it was still like you can't you can't be a, like a fan of any sport and not love when someone is so confident that they just turn around to their rivals, give them a stare down, and just like blow by them. Oh, that, he, was, he's, that was he's, awesome. He stole Ryan Moore's soul in that moment. But Wait, what soul? Implying there's one yeah. to steal. <laughs> yeah, that would be the, that's the only issue with it. But no, I mean, look, I'm not going to take credit for tipping Enable to win, you know, like a horse that ended up going off heavily odds on. That being said, it's an encouraging race that probably, I, again, it's beaten virtually nothing there. The only thing that really cemented, the only big takeaway for me for this is that, Japan. I mean, Japan is done. <laughs> Japan <laughs> continues to, you know, Japan is has, talking about, you know, athletes that haven't done well since things started up again. I mean, Japan has gone from being a horse that was, you know, fa- a favorite a fairly heavy favorite at Royal Ascot to a horse that now I can't imagine being in single figures in a group one ever again. Mm. But yeah, no, I was, thought Enable did. That was a terrible performance. I think I thought Enable did enough. You kind of, it kind of won in the way that you would expect it to and did enough to think that if it goes, you know, well, not if like in the arc, it will have a chance of, of making history. I don't think it was a totally spectacular victory, but but it was it was definitely impressive. And to to have won three King Georges obviously already puts it in you know its place in the history books, and it has a chance that it'll you know do something even more impressive with the arc. Yeah, I think like well, it, it, she's going to go for one more race, right? Like the what Yorkshire Oaks, I think they you'd, said. You'd expect that, it, yeah, it will race. One more time one more. between now and, and the beginning of October in the arc. So, so barring something bad doesn't happen there, I think this race, at least for me, solidifies the statement we've made before that this is going to be the best arc in a very long time for a very long time. I mean, you have Enable, who looks at least back to form. You know, maybe not better, like you're saying, but at least is back. You have Gaeth, who Sam and I have have done the amazing bet of getting some value with. Um, you have Magical, who also won, who will probably go. And Love. you maybe have Stradivarius, that we'll talk about later, might go. And you have Love, who's actually Love. the favorite, who's getting a huge weight allowance as a three-year-old. So, I mean, like, the the amount of great horses in there, I think, like, 10 years from now, people are going to be like, wow, that was a stacked one. But also just, like, the these storylines I think will be pretty good, you know, and like we've talked about whether Dettori would ride Enable versus Stradivarius and we know it'll ride Enable, but you know, like. Just to, just to say uh, Enable is favorite now for the arc. I thought they're joint favorite. I've Enable five to two and love three to one. I'm sure different bookmakers that probably means they're joint favorites in some places. Yeah. Enable, and I would imagine Enable on the day will be favorite. Assuming that yeah. between whatever, whichever race it, it heads to, whatever the plan is, probably wins again between now and the arc. I would say, um, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even you have some, what's magical? Picking up about 16. Six, 16 to 1. 
that's like crazy to me that you have a horse that obviously has never beaten Enable, but it's gotten pretty close and could potentially look better this year. So like if they're already close to begin with, it doesn't need that much to beat it. And that's 16 to one. Like that's just how deep that field is. It's crazy. Well, going on the fact that I'm, you know, when you, when I looked at the anti-post earlier, you've, you've still got Japan holding rough terms of about 16 to 20. No, it's, it's crazy. And I totally agree with what Eddie said, like, it's insane. But then, you know, you also see people like Serpentine are still in the anti-post running. And that's a horse that did this absolutely, well, call it whatever you want, but it won the derby pretty convincingly. And it's going off, if it does go, at like 12s. It's, it's going to be an impressively deep race as well as high quality. I wish there wasn't a ban on Americans coming to... To your oh, oh right we're, we're we're doing an arc special. Like, I mean, I don't. Do... I will. We'll obviously in the build up do a, a much better preview of the arc. I, at the moment, yeah. I, 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 I will be hoping that Enable wins just from the standpoint that it would be nice to see a, a horse achieve uh, what it could achieve by winning that day. You know, I wanted it to win last year, so. But if I had to tip a horse right now, I would tip uh, Sotsas as my tip. What? What horse? Success. Wow. Oh, wow. That would be out of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it's not the yeah. boldest tip in the world. It's yeah. fourth. It's fourth favorite. So I mean, it's yeah, yeah. you get it fourteen, sixteen to one around fourteen, sixteen at the moment. But to me, that would be that would be the move. Apart from, with the exception of enable, I'll be pro, I'll be hoping for enable to win. I'll, I'm sure I'll be I'll be backing it just because I want to have no reservations about watching it make history. But um, I'd also happily take it on because, you know, it seems certainly seems vulnerable and probably more vulnerable than a horse should be in, in order to justify being five to two in the arc, which is, yeah, and especially good. if it ends up being two to one or something, it's a, that's relatively speaking, that's a very short price for a horse in the arc. And yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not I sure think, that I enable this year that. deserves that. I agree. I think it's one of those races where. You make your bet, and if it's Enable that wins, you're not very angry because you're like, oh, Enable won. That's really gr it's great for racing to see. But if like Highland Real gets entered and wins, you know, like something like, or something like Victor Lodrum or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if, if you lose and Enable gets beat, then it becomes a really shitty arc. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and so, I guess it also kind of is a natural way from us one horse that might. Well, we'll pr almost certainly be taking an able on, and who maybe will win? Who knows? Is Stradivarius? Good um, race tomorrow, right? And obviously tomorrow you've got you've got it racing at Goodwood, and in seemingly the first time in a while where there seems to be thoughts that Stradivarius is up against a horse capable of of really challenging it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, the thing for me is the the weight allowance that Santiago is getting, right? I mean, he's getting 15 pounds. That's crazy. Like, and if you go off official ratings, technically, because I was listening today, um, he's only 10 pounds rated higher than Santiago Stradivarius is. So if you're going off of official ratings, like he's getting 15, technically Santiago should be winning, but obviously you, you can't go by just that, you know, Stradivarius is, is just an amazing horse and like it, it just digs in and wins. So there's obviously just more to it than just a rating, but it's a little interesting that Stradivarius is that short of a price. Um, 
and I don't, I don't know. I think this is like, if I, I mean, had to would... make a pick, like, I, I don't like, I don't even, I, I think I'd have to pick Stradivarius until it loses, but mm-hmm. I, I think it could, I think it could certainly be beaten. I think Goodwood's uh, horses for courses kind of place as well, personally. I mean, Stradivarius oh. goes there. Like, yeah, for me... Stradivarius would... goes everywhere. Yeah, but he's won yeah. at Goodwood as well. He's won this exact race. and it's just... No, I know, but I mean, what's... What, I mean, Stradivarius clearly is capable of, of running, I mean, in almost any conditions and certainly on any track. You know, that's not not put off by by any of the quirks of... but. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Frank. Until, this, and you kind of touched on the point that I think is the most important one with Stradivarius. And Sam and I were speaking about this actually in a conversation, sort of off-air conversation. But in, in Stradivarius, you have a horse that clearly understands it's racing and wants to win. And so what you know is if inside the final furlong, it gets into an actual battle with Santiago, that Stradivarius has, has a sort of, an, you know, an IQ, a sort of racing IQ that you know will dig deep and do its best to get there. And you don't always know that about a horse. And there's every chance that, you know, Santiago gets into a situation tomorrow against Stradivarius where suddenly, you know, he kind of doesn't have that extra gear or the sort of reserve to tap into, and Stradivarius does. It's a three-year-old, right? Against a, what, six-year-old? Big age difference there, but um, I was reading a, a preview uh, earlier about it, and they were basically saying, like, right, it's going to be Nyef Road leads them out, always leads them out. So it's going to be Nyef Road around that corner, and then it's going to be a case of where the other two constantly looking at each other, seeing where they are, who kicks on straight after that corner and goes ahead. That, like, that's well, I mean, the race in a maybe it's show. just. Maybe it's just two miles of the Tory staring at Ryan Moore. Who knows? I, I actually are. think. That's an important thing though, right? Dottori has a complete love affair with this horse. So you, like Eddie said, he's going to be ridden intelligently and pretty passionately. It's not like um, Dottori is going to like do wow, anything I, different on this horse. Like, I would, I like I would expect, like, well, I wouldn't, you're implying that some jockeys turn up for No, I'm just saying that I, do, I, appreci- I appreciate a jockey that has a love affair with the horse they're riding. I, I don't know why. I, just I don't think, think that changes anything. I think the argument you can make with the Torian Stradivarius is he obviously knows the horse extremely well. And so within the race, if he has to make tactical che- decisions, will be in the best possible position to make the smartest one. Whereas more on a horse that he is not nearly as familiar with is not in that position. So if suddenly mid-race he thinks, okay, this race isn't you know, playing out the way we thought it would. Mm. How do I change things? And for more, there may be more unknowns there. Whereas Dottori will think, been there, done that. I'm yeah. totally comfortable doing what I need to do here. That's probably the perfect explanation why Stradivarius is one to two kind of thing, four to seven, and why. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, again, it's, it's just that Santiago's getting so much weight. And he's obviously, the only thing is, I, I guess originally it was, this was supposed to be like Kew Gardens was going to be O'Brien's number one stayer. And, and it looked like Q Gardens was doing well and then it got injured. So, you know, now this is like their kind of their plan B. And it's and they did say that Santiago was going to go to the Gold Cup next year. So it looks like they're just kind of pushing the, the, the staying a little early with it. But, I mean, it's at least, I will say, at least this would somewhat solidify the, 
Stradivarius isn't that good. He's just racing shitty horses that, you know, are stayers because they can't really race at one, you know, one, four, one, six. At least this is a, this is a legitimate horse. You know, it's, it's an Irish Derby winner. It's a Queen Bays winner. I mean, come on. It's, it's one, two group ones already. Maybe, you know, but, but, but history would show us in a sense with the horses that Stradivarius has raced so far and the knock on it being often doesn't race great horses. But a lot of the times what happens is Stradivarius races a horse, beats it, then maybe races a time or two more, beats it both times, and that horse kind of just disappears. So the risk here with Santiago is you have a horse with the makings of a very good career who suddenly now, and, and there the judgment is, is that proof that Stradivarius is beating top quality horses? Or is it just that horses get thrown in at the deep end sometimes against a very consistent performer and they're just not at that level? And it's hard to judge. I wouldn't come out if Stradivarius, even if Stradivarius romps home tomorrow in the way that it did at Ascot, I wouldn't then draw the conclusions of like, well, this finally shows that Stradivarius beats top class horses because I, I would need to see more out of Santiago. I mean, I would need to see, for example, Stradivarius retired this season and then Santiago goes on to win the Gold Cup next year well and a number of other races. And then you could say, okay, that, that looks like it, that all, so that the form there was franked. And, and like all too often with, with the horses that's, that Stradivarius races, the form doesn't get franked. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. But I mean, like you're looking at the main competitor for the past few races for him has what, been what, Nyef Road, who's never even raced really in many group ones, let alone win a group one. And then you have a horse like Santiago, who's an Irish Derby winner already. And you're right, like, it, time will tell. But I think, and I don't, I don't, know. I don't you, necessarily you, agree with it. I don't necessarily agree with the people who are Cross saying, Counter, who is, you know, Cross Counter cross racing counter, again. Cr- one of I Melbourne Cross Counter right now in a two-mile sprint. Maybe, but won a Melbourne Cup. You know, this, the, you can make the same argument, right? It's still a horse that won the Melbourne Cup. And, yeah. and then is demolished by Stradivarius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, this, this, I think will shut a lot of people up. I'm not, I, I'm not saying. I'm I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think there's that many I don't yeah. think the streets are packed with, with the uh, Stradivarius doubters. <laughs> I do have to say, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, yesterday and they were talking about Stradivarius and I just think you'll appreciate this. The person said he walks around the enclosure like a playboy before his races. <laughs> I think I think you'll know exactly what you mean when you walk Yeah, I mean for anyone we'll, we'll, we'll give two <laughs> we'll give like two uh recommendations for people to, to things to read or watch uh after this podcast. And one is that Alex Smith documentary. And the second is just make sure you watch Stradivarius and Parade Ring and <laughs> and see see how well endowed Stradivarius is and, and often often excited just yeah. before a race goes. I mean, to, really, say, to say he came out swinging is an understatement in that race, right? You know, he, I said earlier that it, I said He's earlier got quite the swagger. Yeah. I said earlier that it was a horse that understood it was racing and clearly based on, on what you see before a race, it's a horse that loves racing. <laughs> but like, does that make him even better? That like before the race, he is so like that out of it that he's going into a race, you know, that it's like, all right, just throw me in there, whatever. I'll still just demolish everyone. Like 10 minutes ago, I'm swaggering around here. Like I like run the place. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Would I, would I have been more impressed by Usain Bolt if like 
pre 100 meter Olympic finals, he'd come out in his sort of spandex with a massive erection and just kind of gone behind, gone behind the blocks, just, just with it just there. And then just like 30 seconds before the race started, it, it, all, it all died down and he focused in. I don't know if that would have made me think now that that truly is one of the all time great athletes. It just would have been coincidental. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, maybe that's where he was getting his steroid injections. You know, I guess that's the other. So, yeah, and actually, Sam brought up a good point saying that Stradivarius has won at Goodwood. And that brings me to my number one statement about Glorious Goodwood or what is it, the Qatar Goodwood Festival, or whatever it's actually called. Hmm. I hate betting on Glorious Goodwood. I have never, I think I've probably won two races in the past five years because it's one of those tracks where a random horse will win and then it's always like oh he just handled that course really well you know like the jockey knew the course really well it, it never plays to form it's one of the ones where like you'll see a horse turn over another horse three races in a row and then they get to Goodwood and somehow the form is reversed and then the next three races it's not and it's just like oh that's Goodwood and I can't stand it so my goal this year is to bet as little as possible, and that usually lasts about two races, and then I get too anxious, and I start betting, and then I start losing, and I get angry, and I bet more. But I uh, what a, yeah, what, a, what a warning for the listeners about the dangers of gambling there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I Don't try to bet not bet, then I lose, then I get angry, and I bet more, and I lose more. <laughs> yeah. We won't be one of those podcasts that's brought to you by FanDuel. <laughs> Please bet responsibly. Yeah. <laughs> Gambling problem? Call this number. But yeah, Goodwood, people quite violently at the end of races as well go to like the stand side or they'll go to the far side as well. Like they don't really that often. You're not going to see that many days at Goodwood where people are just always on their side or far side. Even with the weather, sometimes it can mess up the middle. So some people make a choice either way. And also, they always talk about Goodwood because it's really undulated. They always talk about these massive stamina drops. So even favorites sometimes, they um, – is it the undulation word? <laughs> Frank, Frank, I, I, so just for context. So wait, wait, right, undulation so, was a word Frank had never heard before, I guess, sort of the seven or eight that. years ago when I sort of started introducing him to horse racing. And, yeah. uh, and then he fell in, love, fell in love with the world, word undulation. Which is true. World of undulations. You basically <laughs> only hear undulation either in horse racing or occasionally in golf, but apart yeah, from that, yeah. it's it's a word that you very rarely hear hear used. Yeah, but, but I think the, like that that to me. So Goodwood, the first time I, we like really bet and watched on Goodwood, that had to be what 2013, 14, somewhere on there. I got crushed, and that was the first time where I kind of realized like these track biases and things like that, because that doesn't exist in American racing. All the tracks in American yeah, racing, flat, you're yeah. turning the same way, it's flat, it's maybe the distance is a little different, but then when you get to English racing, it's so different because each track is so unique. You know, like Ascot is very different from Epson, it's very different from Goodwood, you know, like th there's no consistency. And, and it's, it's one of those things where like, I had never realized that before from growing up with American horse racing. And then I remember, you know, betting on Goodwood and betting these favorites that were like dominant favorites getting turned over. And it's like, why is this happening? Everyone's like, oh, well, this is Goodwood. Yeah. Here it is. You know, it's, and that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like the bias. Yeah. 
I, I'd also say about Goodwood, the other thing that I think can be a factor at times is that whilst there are some very good and you know big races at Goodwood, I think a lot of top horses are primed for sort of some races either just before, you know, that you would have been primed to race at Ascot and then you might be primed for a target slightly later in the year. And Goodwood Falls is obviously a race. The horse will be fit. I'm not implying that they're not, but maybe are not being, the races are not being approached in entirely the same way for, for some of the horses. And so you might end up in situations where, you know, a horse that maybe ran very well at Royal Ascot and is now, now has its sights set on a race a little bit later in the year is not in quite the same condition for a race at Glorious Goodwood that it will be elsewhere. And I, and so I think that can make it a little bit less predictable at times. But I guess that gives us a chance. I mean, if we look forward to tomorrow's racing, we've obviously spoken about Stradivarius already. To me, the other interesting race is the vintage stakes with, with Battleground uh, racing, just because it will be interesting to see if Battleground kind of repeats the same performance from Royal Ascot. And if it really is a horse, a sort of a top quality horse, tomorrow is going to be a, you know, an interesting test. Yeah, we, we, we talked, we've talked about this like a few times already this year about how O'Brien, is this his best year? You know, does he have like the same high caliber horses? And I think this could be one of them. I, I really like this horse Royal Ascot because it's out of found. And I loved Found, and I loved that Found destroyed Eddie's hope in the arc a few years ago. So it holds a special place in my heart because Eddie had quoted another great Eddie quote saying, there is no way Found will win the arc. That's an absolute 100% quote. And then three days later, it went out and won the arc. The so, only thing I would hope, just because obviously there's been some uh, people digging back through the records to try and tarnish my name and my ability to pick things going on here. I would hope that the listeners appreciate the fact that people can so easily remember the times when I'm wrong. It's just because I'm wrong so infrequently and it becomes such an important, it becomes such an important moment in their lives that they then have to think, Oh, I have to remember this quote from 2014 for the rest of my life. This is actually Eddie. I will say Eddie can go on record saying that I have a terrible, terrible memory and that I probably have early onset dementia. I do remember oh God. where you told me that found wouldn't win the arc. I was in HR at the university waiting to like see one of the HR people. And that's what you told me. And I'll never forget that. So maybe that is a testament. Maybe, to maybe you, you should wrong. have been more focused on whatever had brought you into the HR department at the university. I was going to say, can we get some more elaboration on the HR? <laughs> 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 it was just for benefits, nothing exciting. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's out of found, which I loved found. So I think just like, I, I just genuinely like want the horse to win to succeed. And my other great thing that I always say that is humorous is that it's just a really big, big muscular horse. Like I remember seeing it, it was just a monster out there. So, you know, those two year olds that are big sometimes just do go on because they're just bigger at two and then tamper down at three, like Pinatubo. I remember Pinatubo as a two-year-old was a monster. And then now it's like, it looks pretty normal to the other horse. Like they kind of caught up. So maybe that's something there. Like, I, I, I just think it's going to, I think this is going to be one of O'Brien's like vintage good two-year-olds because it hasn't had one yet. So I think it's, it's, he's due. He's due to, have, well, besides, I mean, well, loves three, but like he's due to have that two-year-old 
that is like, oh, this is your this is your two thousand guineas, you know, Antipo's favorite. You know, I think Battleground could be it. Whether it'll then be a good horse, you know, or it'll do the Air Force One route, who knows? But I think I think Battleground's legit. Okay, and uh, you mentioned Pinatubo there, and obviously Pinatubo is not at the Sussex Stakes, but it was, oh, you know, a, a mile long race packed with just a, you know. Certainly three, well, four, maybe even, I guess you could argue five very interesting horses. So as that's obviously the standout race on day two. And the question there will be whether or not Siskin can really take the step into superstardom, I guess. If it, Siskin wins this, then the unbeaten record, sort of stepping outside of Ireland finally, finally starts to really look like a legitimate a legitimate superstar. I'm a bit concerned by some of the, the noises coming out of the Siskin, Siskin camp. It's not, a, it doesn't seem overly confident, but that may just be the style and not trying to overhype the horse, but it certainly seems that there, there might be some doubts there. Yeah. I mean, both Lions and, and Colin Keene have both said individually that it still needs to find, find a little bit to compete with these horses, which is a little discouraging that they both said it. Like if one of them had said it, you know, you just say like, oh, that's a, a humble person, you know, but for both of them to say it, then they must kind of really believe that. Uh, but maybe they're just, you know, maybe they just don't want to be super optimistic. I don't know. This to me though is like an awesome race. If it weren't for the arc that we think the arc is going to be the race of the year, this could be like the race of the year. I mean, you have every good mile horse that we've talked about a lot, like Siskin, Mohathir, Cameco, which even Wichita, like, isn't a bad horse by any standards. Circus Maximus, I mean, come on, like, that's a horse that can. No, I mean, the, the only one missing, like, the only one missing is Pinatubo. Pinatubo which is disappointing, it, but. Yeah, if you, if you threw Pinatubo into this race, you would literally say that it's every top class miler around in it. I mean, so. even a horse like Vatican City, who, you know, like obviously didn't do well in the Derby, but obviously, you know, you could just say that it, it can't say that trip and it goes back to the Irish oh, where almost, it almost beat Siskin. I mean, it gave Siskin a run. It didn't almost beat it, but it was second to Siskin. So, you know, like yeah. that's a, that's a good horse and that's 14 to one for a horse that was second to Siskin. I mean, oh, and it's entirely possible. This would be the classic O'Brien's third string winning a, <laughs> oh, oh no no no! That's for next week. Winning a group one, <laughs> winning a group one race. And how crazy that that's a, that's the third string. Like that's the first time I can legitimately say that if O'Brien's third string won, that's a legitimate horse. Whereas a lot of the times when his third like horse string win, sometimes we're not you know, sure like, if they're sometimes we're not sure if they're horses. This yeah. is the level. This is the level of of, of racing analysis we provide. We can confirm. DNA. We can confirm to all of our listeners that Vatican City is a horse. <laughs> so I mean, who do you, who do you, who do you guys take? Um, my heart really wants Siskin to win. It's kind of not that it's as established, but it's sort of in the enable argument for me a bit. Where I want to see, I like seeing superstar horses, and I like seeing, you know those kind of season defining horses or races. So I hope I, I have serious doubts about Siskin, 
mainly just because of the noises coming out of the camp and some of them to me are a little bit bizarre the level of doubts they're talking about seem a bit strange but i i mean i thought the way it won the irish guineas was extremely impressive whether or not the way it barged out of being penned in might have seen it disqualified in other countries even ignoring that fact just the way it picked up was was so impressive that you know i think it's it's getting to the point because it's drifting so it's now out to nine to four you know there's a possibility that on wednesday it's sort of three to one if this keeps up might even end up being second favorite potentially and i think at that moment you're going to be looking at serious value sam can't comment haven't looked at it yet <laughs> yeah i mean are you sure wait hold on sam though do you think they're all horses well i've got to look into that haven't i you know let's start with the facts let's start with are they all horses and then i'll start looking you know just to make sure it's not two guys well the guy the guy who the guy who believes who doesn't believe in the in the coronavirus is also unwilling unwilling to confirm that they are horses Stop painting that story. I mean, for me, yeah, I'd like to see Siskin win. I don't know because, I mean, I I've, I personally have made that argument that it, it's only racing in Ireland, so is it really racing the best? Like, have we seen it up against great horses, or are we just seeing it up against O'Brien, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh stringers, like it did in the Irish Guineas, right? I mean, it basically raced O'Brien's yard. That's, that's I mean, what that's, it, it, it's it was Siskin versus O'Brien's yard. And that fundamentally so, has been its career so far. Yeah, it's, exactly. And and I mean, I'd like to see it win. I think that'd be cool. Exactly what you're saying. You know, I think it's cool when the sport has superstars. I don't know why everyone has abandoned Cameco so quickly, just because it didn't stay in the Irish Dar in the in the Derby, which everyone kind of said it wouldn't stay. But yet in the Guineas, it ran a great race in the Guineas. I think it set the track record, right? I mean. It's a fast horse. It can get the mile. Like, I don't understand why everyone's kind of abandoned it just because it had one bad run at a distance that was too much for it. Um, but I, I think I have to go, as much as it pains me to say, I have to go with Ryan Moore and Circus Maximus just because it's done well for me in the past. And it's one of those horses that if it's just there at the end, it's kind of got that Stradivarius thing where it knows – how to win if it's there like if it's behind it's not going to catch up and win but if if you're you know two furlongs in and it's right at the lead with the other horses and can kind of see them and get a feel for it it could potentially just grind out and win it like it's a grinder and i, yeah. I really like that and it's, it's been good to me like i i said it before i like to stick with horses that i win with you know until something otherwise happens so i think for me it's either cameco or just my gut heart feeling of Circus Maximus. Yeah, it's a tough one because the style in which Circus Maximus won at Ascot was very impressive. I mean, it and Terrabellum were, you know, well clear of the rest. That being said, the form doesn't look as good after Terrabellum really didn't have a, a great race last time out. I know that Gosden was so surprised that it didn't win, but still fundamentally that that makes it a little bit harder to, to read into that race. That being said, too, you know, Mahathir was in that race, too. And even though it had a horrible, you know, horrible luck in running, you're still trying to say, how is it going to find sort of five lengths 
on Circus Maximus. So it is an interesting one where you have when you when you do look at the the sort of order in the betting, you can make a legitimate case for any of the top five. I think, you know, I, it would be impossible for someone to say that that that, not, that any of them don't have a chance. Yeah, I think it's it's just going to be an awesome race. These are the races that make horse racing fun to watch when it's just a bunch of winners and you kind of get to see who's top dog or top horse since we know they're whole horses. Um, should we or, or very big dogs? Or <laughs> should should we talk about? So I guess we'll record next or this Thursday. So should we do Thursday's races as well and then leave Fridays for the next one? Yeah, we Thursday's may as well do got that. some good ones. Mm-hmm. So on Thursday you have the the Gordon Stakes, and that's pretty cool because you have a lot of the Derby horses um, that are coming back to kind of re-race each other without Serpentine, so we can get a a true test of who's the best horse. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got English King is favored. Tiger Moth, who a lot of people are really high on Tiger Moth. Um, I mean, almost caught Santiago. So depending on how that race works out two days before, you know, if Santiago looks really good, then you have to like Tiger Moth. Um, you have Khalifa Set and Mogul. So you get some more of that uh, Derby uh, rematch things in there. So it's, it's, a, it's a really good race too. I mean, I feel like the races this year are better than they normally are at Goodwood, um, which again is going to make me want to bet it. And then I'm going to lose to a course specialist at 25 to one and get pissed. But I mean, for yeah, me, I mean, that's, I, that's a very interesting race. I have to an honest, be honest. I don't understand Mogul's price. I don't get how Mogul is four to one second favorite for that. I've seen nothing from Mogul this season to make me think. I have, it, I have it at six to one, like fifth favorite. For oh, really? Betfair. Yeah, on Betfair, he's like fifth favorite. Uh, William Hill, four to one, second favorite at the moment. What does William Hill know? <laughs> but I mean, I'll we'll find I, out I on thir- Thursday, I guess. I know you're going to go English King. No, I actually like, on the, on I really like, uh, I mean, I do like English King. And you, when you think of the confident level of confidence they had in it going into the Derby, it would then be if that confidence is in any way well founded you would have to think it wins this race. If they genuinely, I mean, if you can throw the Derby out because it was just such an oddly run race. Um, and in the end too, I mean, obviously it finished well back, but it still finished fifth. So it's not as if it was of the horses that were then, you know, if you, th- if you throw Serpentine sort of out of the field, English King would have been in, every, in with every chance of winning had it not been for, you know, that happening. So, so, so real quick before you finish, I want to touch on that point. If you throw out Serpentine winning, then Khalifa Set beat it pretty well. I mean, so are you also kind of throwing that out because Khalifa Set, uh, maybe Marquand kind of knew what was happening and, and kind of went to chase it a little better than the rest of them? Or, or because if you're, if you're doing that, then why isn't Khalifa Set the, the number one choice here? You know, because on on merit, it beat English King and Mogul and all of them. Yeah, no, no, 100%. And I'm not saying Khalifa Set has no chance of winning. I guess I'm just approaching the race in a sense of trying to say, let's imagine the derby never took place. And how would I feel about these horses? And, in, in, and if that's the case for me, I mean, you can't be, obviously on that grounds, you can't be totally dismissive of Mogul. But that would be the reason why English King would still stand out to me. I mean, personally, I think my preference at the moment would be for Al Asi, but 
Um, wow. It would between it would be it will be between that and English King. Yeah, I would say I I wouldn't be surprised if English King bounces back. I really actually like Tiger Moth, and I'm interested to see if Ryan Moore chooses that over Mogul. If they finally just give up on Mogul, or if he does give up on Mogul, and now this is the chance for Mogul to win when Ryan Moore is not on board as second choice, which is then would be really stereotypical, Brian. But I mean, it also depends again, like I said, if Santiago runs well against Stradivarius, then I think Tiger Moth, you have to be interested, you know, cause it, it was close to Santiago and almost beat it. So yeah, I think. Yeah. And then, and then you also have the, the Nassau stakes that day, which has Nazif racing again and I, you have to argue that Nazif might be the most disrespected horse in terms of the odds it consistently, it doesn't stop winning, but the odds would never ever indicate that this is a horse that wins every race that it competes in. I mean, the fact that you can consistently bet on it at, you know, two to one or bigger, if you just, if, I mean, if you, if all you had done in your life is bet on Nazif and kept reinvesting your winnings, you would be a very happy person. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy in this race. The first three horses have a combined two losses out of over, I think, 14 races. So it's, you have three really good horses who rarely lose. And I, mean, I think, you know, they've, like Nazif just lost on its maiden and that was it. And then Fancy Blue lost in its opener this year. But I kind of like Fancy Blue um, because it, beat Alpine Star in France. And I really liked Alpine Star. And I really like Alpine Star because it beat Sharing at Royal Ascot. And I really like that horse. <laughs> so it's like this, this little domino. Well, I mean, but I guess by that same logic, right? Because you like Circus Maximus and Nazif beat Terrabellum. It's true. So so if you're if we're gonna do the kind of draw try and draw these form lines through the race, you have to really like Nazif. Because I do like Nazif as well. I, yeah, I like, I mean, and that's, uh, that's not much of a shock. I'm picking two out of the top three favorites. But um, yeah, I, I, Nazif, I think, will be hard to beat. But this could be like a fancy blue Donico O'Brien, youngest trainer now, you know, winning a second group one in, in his first year of training. You know, well, I'll also say, high on it. I'll also say that I haven't been the biggest Nazif believer. And that this was probably the first race where it probably has me fully in its camp. So it will be so definitely a loser. It's a loser. Yeah. <laughs> now that it, yeah. now that, now that it, now that I have been fully convinced in its credentials is the time when it proves my previous thoughts to be a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And I mean, the other thing too, we, we, you touched on it. Gosden said he didn't think it could beat Terrabellum. So was, was it winning? A testament to how good it is or that Terrabellum just didn't show up that day and that it's not the better horse. Yeah plus Gosden's just impossible to interpret because he tends to err on the side of caution and is a little bit negative when he speaks about horses and yeah. so it's just impossible really just to know whether or not he's he's really giving his true feelings or if he's just sometimes trying to temper expectations and you know, it's, it's difficult to judge. He's a kind of anti O'Brien in that respect. O'Brien, every horse O'Brien has ever trained is, is, you know, the next Frankel. And if you listen to the way they talk about them sometimes, 
and then every horse that Gosden trains, there are some there are, you know some reservations or some reasons why he has he has doubts, and that, I think that's just his style. So it's difficult to know how his comments in the the in the race against Terrabellum, how that you know how much you can how much weight you can give to them. Yeah, and I th I mean yeah for me that should be pretty good for good when we can talk about Batash on the next podcast. Yeah, I love my love for Batash. No, so yeah, obviously this. Hopefully, if all goes to plan, this episode will sort of drop um, on the first day of Goodwood. So all of our references to this the Stradivarius racing tomorrow will people have to keep in mind that that's not the case. But yeah, we'll be able to if everything if everything works smoothly, we'll then be able to preview uh, Friday's races on Thursday and have have that episode come out on on Friday morning. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've got nothing for Galway. I don't, we talked about this off air. I don't really get it. I don't get why it's such a big deal. And I guess because it's a social event, that's why it's a big deal. But racing wise, to me, it's a bunch of handicaps that are, a lot of the horses have been like secretly aimed for this and you have no idea. And then there's you know, a lot of just random winners. Nothing ever plays, plays the card. So what there, else is you horse, to... there is a horse named Duca racing either Wednesday or Thursday. So look out for that one. That'll be a clear winner for Gordon Elliott. But other than that, that'll be my only bet for Galway. <laughs> well, that's something for everyone to look forward to. Yeah. No, no tip is better than a tip based on your last name. For a horse that hasn't won in like eight races either. <laughs> it's, oh, due. it's due. It's due. <laughs> Have it's one since the ninth is the It's been geared for this race three years ago. <laughs> yeah, just, right. It's just its entire life. <laughs> Um, anything else, gentlemen? No, I think that's 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 it for me. I'm down. I'm down. Cool. All right. Well, no, we'll uh, meet again in a few days, and we can discuss the Stradivarius race and all the other races, and talk a little more about the NHL and NBA things like that. Yep. Yeah. By then, we'll know if uh, Santiago is the real deal. We'll know if Siskin is a superstar. We'll see if um, every member of the Florida Marlins has contracted the virus <laughs> maybe by then sam will actually believe that the virus is a real thing who knows maybe no i love no the promises i love it's horrible isn't it <laughs> all right thanks thanks for tuning in to the big chill podcast and uh we'll talk to you later see ya <laughs>